I'm Alka Kurian, host of the new podcast South Asian Films and Books. I'm also a faculty at the University of Washington Bothell, teaching film literature, gender and human rights. In this first season of South Asian Films and Books, I'm going to look at how South Asian writers and filmmakers explore some of the major issues and help us make sense of the world that we inhabit. From politics to culture, each episode looks at a topic that impacts and shapes the lives of people living in South Asia and its diasporas. This is South Asian Films and Books, an original podcast broadcast from Seattle. Subscribe to new South Asian Films and Books as soon as possible so you don't miss a single episode. In today's episode, I'll be talking with Amitabh Ghosh. Ghosh is an Indian-born writer, a recipient of four honorary doctorates, and a winner of the 2018 Gyanpeeth Award, India's highest literary honor. His ambitious work focuses on the lives of people in India and South Asia, where he explores the meaning of national and personal identity. His notable works are The Shadow Lines, The Glass Palace, The Hungry Tide, and his Ibis trilogy, Sea of Poppies, which was shortlisted in 2008 for the Man Booker Prize, River of Smoke, The Flood of Fire. At the Seattle Town Hall on September 19th, Amitabh Ghosh spoke about his latest novel, Gun Island, a powerful narrative on the predicament of the modern world. It's a story about a world ravaged by climate change, which has imperiled the lives of millions of people across the world. With these devastating typhoons, tornadoes, freak storms, forest fires and all, we are seeing the unraveling of the most important crisis of our times on a daily basis. where as ghosh puts it creatures and beings of every kind have been torn loose from their accustomed homes by the catastrophic processes of displacement that are now unfolding across the earth at an ever increasing pace a world which is also damaged and ravaged by corporate interests and unplanned and unthinking development and the resultant refugee crisis human trafficking illegal organ trade internet trolling and witch hunting. What a serendipity today that I am talking to Ghosh about his novel on the day of the very first global climate strike, a day when students from more than 150 countries across the world have taken to the streets to demand climate action. So Amitabh Ghosh, you've mentioned somewhere that your earlier work, The Great Derangement, is an autocritique of your own failings as a novelist who didn't do enough to write about climate change is gun island an attempt to make good of this gap in your writing um no i don't think gun island was written to any uh, kind of program as such you know uh, you know after i'd finished uh, writing the great derangement i was you know Uh, actually I started writing something else and then suddenly just one day I had these ideas for uh, uh, for a story which is how it often happens you know these such an idea comes into your head but of course you know once you've sort of acquainted yourself with the literature on climate change and once you've really taken notice of what's happening in the world it's impossible to unknow it you know so it's in your head so uh inevitably it sort of enters your work it enters your thinking it enters your uh you know the ways that, the, in which you see the world so 
yeah, I mean, uh, in, in that way, certainly I don't think I'll ever be able to write anything, you know, on any subject, uh, which doesn't in some way touch upon, uh, you know, these aspects of our times. Mm-hmm. Um, so referring back to the great derangement, you refer to the need to resuscitate indigenous stories. And Gun Island is structured around stories, in particular the legend of Manasa Devi and the gun merchant, their significance in popular memory, their revival and revisions at various times of history. Gun Island also humanizes Manasa Devi. Um, it talks about her ego that demands that the gun merchant follow her wish, her frailties in particular and the ways in which you talk about, the, about how she would have had to cajole the snakes to do her bidding and her role as a mediator between two species, humans and animals. Could you talk to us a little bit about your choice of this legend? What purpose does it serve? And in particular, in the context of the um, climate crisis? Well, you know, I, I was... The legend is actually a very interesting one, and uh, I guess I heard it when I was a child, and, you know, it was, it was kind of uh, a part of our cultural world, especially in Bengal. This legend actually is very much a legend of Eastern India. I don't think it's that well known outside, um, outside the East. But in Eastern India, it's very, it's a very well known. It's sort of everybody knows it, people talk about it, and so on. And I realize now that this story, which is essentially a story about the goddess of snakes, Manusha Devi, and her conflict with this character called uh, a Chad Shodagor, meaning the merchant Chand. But the merchant figure crops up in many guises, you know, in Bengali stories and so on. But this, this, this is the constant that, you know, the, the goddess wants him as her uh, devotee and he resists and pushes back because, you know, uh, he is, uh, he's a devotee of Shiva and he doesn't want to uh, surrender to her. So she persecutes him, she sends all these, uh, sh she sends snakes and the snakes kill his entire family and he tries to run away and she creates these disasters and calamities and so on. And finally he escapes overseas, uh, you know. Uh, and uh, where exactly where he, he goes, we don't know. I mean, it, you know, it varies between, um, between different tellings of the legend. But I think what's very interesting in this story is that it conceptualizes a conflict between the human uh, quest for profit, you know, which is symbolized by the merchant, and uh, other beings, you know, uh, nature, if you like, or, or the environment, or you know. So, you know, Manusha Devi is, as it were, standing, standing in for all the beings of this world. And she is a, she is trying to sort of voice their needs and their uh, you know their their need for the merchant to acknowledge that uh, there are these other beings in the world you know and that struck me when I read when when I came back to that legend and read it in detail that had a very powerful impression on me because after all I mean it seems to go absolutely to the heart of our contemporary condition, you know, which is this conflict between a prophet and the being that is the earth, you know. So, uh, uh, you know, 
so I, I suppose it sort of captured my imagination in that way and I started sort of thinking of you know um, you know how do I tell this story in, in a contemporary way if you like and you know from from there it just went on mm-hmm. and interestingly um, while the world today is waking up to the climate crisis and activism around it is most impressive it's been a constant part of the lives of the coastal people living in Bangladesh and India causing people to flee creating new forms of diasporas which are different to the diasporas that one frequently talks about that resulted as a result of people's flight at the time of the 1947 partition or later on in 1971 at, you know after the war or during the war of independence so you have a different kind of diaspora that is created you have climate refugees for example the central character dean's parents they relocate to the undivided india due to the floods in dhaka um you refer to the 2009 um you know cyclone ayla and the damage that is inflicted on the region on the sundarbans and the resultant movement of labor gangs across borders um for example the young inhabitants of sundarbans then eventually flee to venice via a most treacherous journey coating dangers hunger violence uncertainty becoming modern day slaves etc so could you comment on this climate refugee crisis that you outline in the gun in the gun island well let me say first that i'm really happy to be here talking talking about this on this day of the climate strike you know which is uh so wonderful to see so many young people coming out and you know literally going out on the streets and because after all you know uh the whole climate crisis is the result of many kinds of injustice but uh, there's also a generational injustice you know uh and they will have to pay the price so it's it's wonderful to see them actually mobilizing around this on this uh, on this vast scale it's very impressive and it's uh, you know it gives one hope really on the question of the uh, of uh, climate migration you know i think it's a it's a very complicated question really because there are certain uh, groups of people who are clearly climate migrants in the sense that you know their their land is gone their the, a very clear example of this was what happened recently in the bahamas and uh, many of the refugees were trying to leave uh, you know and they were actually turned back but you know they were uh, clearly climate migrants in that sense uh, also after hurricane maria uh, there was this puerto rico went through this really big uh, depopulation event you know where lots and lots of people just left and went off to florida or to the us and of course they had the ability to leave in that way because they have you know uh, they are americans essentially and then again you have uh, you know the inhabitants of uh, the pacific islands like vanuatu and and tuvalu and so on who are steadily losing their lands and who'll have to migrate and they again i think we could say quite clearly are climate migrants but uh, for most migrants and but i i think we have to remember that these in terms of number people from these regions the pacific islands um, or for example uh, the caribbean and so on uh, are a very small percentage of the people who are moving you know 
this is a very large-scale phenomenon. And I don't think it's possible really to reduce it to any one thing like climate, you know, this, this vast movement of people. Because actually what the climate crisis uh, represents, especially in the lives of these migrants, is the intersection of many different kinds of crises, you know. Uh, so say, for example, a person who loses their land in Bangladesh or, you know, uh, <coughs> when I was writing this book, I went to, I, I, I went to Italy and I spent quite a long time visiting, uh, uh, you know, Italian migrant camps and refugee camps and uh, speaking to uh, migrants, you know, from India. Uh, actually, <laughs> there were very few from India, but uh, Bangladesh, Pakistan. Um, it was very interesting to talk to them, you know, uh, also some Egyptians and so on. Uh, because, you know, when once you speak to them, you realize that actually uh, their movement stands at the vector of multiple intersecting imperatives, you know, of which one of the most important is technology, uh, you know, uh, especially communications technology. I mean, in fact, the, uh, uh, this kind of movement would not be possible without the, form, uh, the kinds of communication technology we have today. You know, uh, uh, the cell phone especially is absolutely crucial to these movements. So, uh, you know, it, there are so many factors that go into a migrants making this decision. Some of them are just, uh, you know, actually completely random. I mean, you know, they see a, a picture posted by a relative or somebody randomly puts them in touch with a, you know, with a Dalal, as they're called, uh, actually in India and in uh, and in Africa, uh, Dalal is a middleman, um, uh, what's known as a connection man nowadays. You know, they uh, they put them in touch with these sort of networks of connection. You know, so it could be just a random thing like that. You know, or it could be. Uh, but on top of that, there's there's always other forms of conflict, there's violence, there's political conflict, and of course there's, uh, there's the class structure, you know. So, so there are so many levels of, uh, there are so many intersecting factors there that I don't think it's actually really possible to just uh, reduce it to climate. I would say really that in fact uh, what you see with a with a large part of this kind of movement is actually that it's an effect of a wider acceleration within the world. And it, that acceleration is actually what also produces climate change. So in that sense, it's the acceleration that has happened over the last 30 or 40 years that produces both accelerating climate change and the accelerating movement of people. Uh, you know. That's the really curious thing, uh, you know. It's not. Uh, it's not that climate does this. It's rather there's a kind of uh, 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 there's a kind of wider change happening in the world, which is effectively shaking people loose, you know, at multiple levels. And climate is one of the factors that's shaking them loose, but other factors as well, uh, you know. Uh, deepening uh, poverty, deepening uh, structural injustice, which at the same time is tied 
to a moment when somebody on his cell phone can see images of affluence from all around the world, you know. So, you know, we think of this technology, especially communications technology, uh, as having its primary impact in the West. But this is a deeply misleading idea, you know. Uh, in fact, uh, the reach of social media and the internet is greater in countries like India or Kenya or Nigeria or um, Bangladesh. Bangladesh has very high internet penetration, very high rates of social media use, you know. Uh, so, you know, we tend to think, when we think of, we all know now that these technologies actually interfere, with, uh, you know, with kids, uh, the neural structure, you know, with their brains. I mean, it gets into their brains. But when we think of that, we tend to think of, let's say, a kind of nerdy guy in Silicon Valley or something, you know, or in Japan or somewhere. But in fact, I think this technology has a even more profound impact on the poor kid in the Indian countryside or the African countryside, you know. Uh, yeah, like, for example, you do talk about, uh, you know, how... Um you know, phones in in many poor countries are a matter of survival, for example, for the farmers. Absolutely. Because they get a lot of information through, you know, WhatsApp or whatever about the weather conditions and everything. Yeah, I think you do talk about the digital skills of the poor and that you bring that out very powerfully, in particular in the context of Tipu. Uh, tipu. Um, you know, your narrative is replete with reference to, references to this digitally connected world that we live in. So you have, you know, people like... Uh, internet savvy people like Tipu, the digital, and you refer to the digital skills of the poor. But I was really fascinated by Tipu's reference to uh, the smartphones and the internet as a migrant migrant's magic carpet, as you know, their conveyor belt. And I think so it was really, really very powerfully um, referred to. But you also refer to, uh, interestingly, and in a very uh, important and in a very important context, you refer in particular when you refer to Pia, you talk about the problem of internet trolling and you know the modern day you know witch hunting. And I just wondered if you wanted to talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, um, we all know now that um, these are these are enormous problems. Uh, you know, the ways in which social media can direct hate at people. I mean, it can actually drive people to suicide, as we uh, as we know. In that way, it's 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 very curious how uh, it's actually be become like witchcraft. You know, yeah. in that sense, that it can actually channel a kind of very directed hatred at um, at people at certain points, mm -hmm. and it also creates these literally witch hunts. You know, what we call them witch hunts, and in fact. So it's very strange how these uncanny aspects of um, human existence have now taken, if you like, a new sort of digital form. You know, it's kind of uh, it's kind of very unnerving. You know, absolutely. Um, and it's difficult to you know to sort of to to talk about the power of social media while at the same time talking also about, you know, the kind of damage that it can do. Um, but interestingly, going back to characters like Tipu, um, and you point out uh, very powerfully, in particular towards the end of the, of the very last chapter, 
uh, you, find, you sort of refer to the migrants as being the masters of their own lives because they use precisely because of the access to the internet that helps them navigate this very treacherous world, this uncharted territory that they are launching themselves into. Um, you know, they organize their travels by means of their own networks. And unlike the indentured labors of the past, and here I'm referring to Sea of Poppies, um, you know, where the lives of migrants were determined by the colonial masters and whose labor was deployed in the interest of the colonial state, the modern day migrants are masters of their own journeys. And which is what is threatening, you know, become a source of great anxiety. Uh, because unlike in the European nations of the past, where the West determined what they looked like, they did, you know, perform studies on how they looked like and what they did, and you know, ethnographic studies on them. The migrants of today's world, the West knows very little about them. And hence they have anger and fear of the migrants, where the black and brown bodies are no longer under their control. So I was really struck in this context by what Hamid Dabashi, in his book, The Arab Spring, The End of Postcolonialism, he refers to the delayed defiance of the Middle Eastern people against internal and external forces of, ensl of enslavement. And in Tipu, and I'm making this connection, in Tipu and other asylum seekers, I see hints at various levels of this delayed defiance when he says, I don't care about passports and visas, you know, like who the hell are you to tell me what I should be doing? And so, and I borrow the idea from Hamid Dabashi and refer to people like Tipu and other migrants like him, as other asylum seekers like him, as being, as inhabiting a permanent revolutionary mood. And I wondered what you thought about that. That's uh, an interesting question, but let, let me start at the beginning where uh, uh, you talk about their movements being self-directed. Look, it's certainly true that their movements are not directed by some uh, governmental agency, as, as was the case with uh, slavery, uh, with indenture. These were all governmental forms of uh, demographic intervention. You know, This is quite different. But at the same time, I don't... I don't know that I would call it necessarily completely self-directed because actually the migrants are preceded by enormous networks, you know, and these networks are clandestine networks, uh, but they're very powerful networks with enormous resources, you know. So, you know, we have to, uh, you know, uh, move, moving people has now overtaken uh, the drug trade uh, as, uh, uh, you know, in size, just in size, uh, just in terms of numbers of money and so on. So this is a, a multi, multi-billion dollar kind of uh, industry, you might call it. And you know, when an industry exists in that way, in a sense, uh, it is also moving people, uh, you know, it's like it sets up, if you like, uh, a kind of production line and the people join it at, at, at various points. I think that is, in a way, uh, uh, one of the most uh, unsettling aspects of this whole thing, you know, that uh, this thing exists. Can it ever be shut down? Uh, I really wonder, because where there's so much money, we've seen even uh, in America, they're able to corrupt the process. You know, they're able to buy off agents here and there. Um, so. In that sense, I think one of the most interesting issues about this exactly is this question of 
uh, self-directedness. Because, see, the, the migrant, uh, the, the guy who's moving is uh, actually interacting at one level with this network and at another level with uh, a technology, you know. So in that sense, we already have there a human-non-human interaction of a very strange kind. And I think that's one of the reasons why uh, the, the figure of this migrant uh, is so uh, represents such a crisis, uh, especially for liberal governance. Because for liberal governance, the whole idea is uh, that the migrant must be presented in the first place as a victim, and secondly, as someone who's taken their own decisions. But when you actually have this kind of uh, uh, this kind of decision emerging out of a human, non-human kind of collaboration, it becomes much, much weirder and stranger. It makes you realize that, you know, our notions of governance are themselves now so outdated. So in that sense, you know, I think this technology, communications technology, has been much, much more disruptive than we actually realize. And also empowering. I don't know how empowering it is, actually. I think it's actually the opposite, I would say. In many ways, it's a disempowering because people don't have control over the images that they see and uh, you know what the images relate to within themselves. So, uh, you know, I, I, I don't think one can necessarily uh, sort of give it plus and minus points. It's something which is, you know, it's a, it's a total system that's come into being. And it's systematically undermining, uh, undermining uh, really dimensions of life that we could never even have imagined, you know. So in that way, it's a. It, so uh, to come back to your other question about uh, about Dubashi, about Dubashi's idea of there it being a sort of state of permanent pro uh, protest. Yes, that's exactly what it is. Uh, the migrant who launches on this journey is uh, is protesting against, uh, I mean, implicitly trying to undo every kind of structural injustice, you know. Mm -hmm. And I think there's something very poignant about that because actually, you know, uh, the West has for, so, has for so long put out this idea that, you know, that it's generally benevolent, that it cares for people, and so on and so forth. And many of the migrants come to believe that, you know. And they really believe that, you know, the, the, that moment of their interaction, you know, with the Western welfare kind of state will be one of general benevolence and, uh, you know. And uh, I think that process leaves them in a state of terrible disillusionment, you know. Right. But again, you know, the migrant's journey really represents a conflict you know it's conflict at every at every stage across social class across the lines of social class absolutely yeah um i now would like to uh, move to the theme of um, intuition in your novel and um in shadow lines you talk about how the middle class I found this passage really very poignant uh, when you refer to the ways in which the middle class clings to education and 
by virtue of which clings to the idea of secularity and rationality, precisely to escape from the chance of slipping into poverty and chaos. In Gun Island, on the other hand, you seem, you seem to take a different positionality because the narrative refers to, and the narrative gives centrality to emotions, premonition, intuition, chance, and other things that can't be explained by the rational mind. And I would like to know what you, you know, how do you sort of sit these two ideas together? Uh, I don't think they're separate ideas. I mean, you know, uh, my very first book was called The Circle of Reason, and the whole point of it was, of the title was that, uh, you know, that in, in many ways, rationality is itself a delusion. Uh, you know, I mean, that sort of idea of enlightenment reason that we come out of, uh, in a way, it's the delusional nature of it has been completely laid bare by climate change, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, if that enlightenment rationality had prevailed, I mean, if it were a real thing, then we know that, you know, governments wouldn't be doing what they're doing now. We know that, you know, I mean, that's just at one level of, uh, um, of rationality. But so, I, you know, for me, this whole idea of, uh, you know, this, our self-conception of ourselves as, uh, as rational beings and as people who, who respond to things rationally, I've always been interested in actually uh, the ways in which that isn't true or, you know, the ways in which that can be seen to be uh, false, you know. But I would say that the difference, uh, perhaps in this book, is that uh, it's uh, it's much more clearly located in a domain that I would call the uncanny, mm -hmm. you know. And because I I feel that there's something very uncanny about this moment, and I think that's exactly what climate change has brought about: this accelerating sorts of the the. Uh, the changing environment that we see all around us. There's something so profoundly uncanny about it at every level, you know. We are not at home anymore. That's the sense that we can get. And, in, and you know, uh, when Sinta or Chinta, when Chinta uh, and Dean, when they go to this conference and there's this person talking about, you know, how we're now paying the price for the fact that the British or the Londoners burned coal in the 17th century, and had they not had the Euro had the Europeans not been comfortable in their skin because of the burning of the coal, would they have produced the Enlightenment? You know, the philosophers would they have been if they hadn't been comfortable? I think that's what you refer to. And uh, yeah, so it's taken us 300 years, so we're now paying the price for the comfort of the philosophers to produce. You know the ideas of freedom and which they wouldn't have been able to do if they weren't physically comfortable. You know, it's a, it's a mysteriously interconnected set of impacts, you know, because I think the critical moment really is uh, 1492 and the discovery of the Americas. Because what, what I talk about in this book, uh, The Little Ice Age, you know, mm -hmm. Uh, one of the uh, uh, one of the factors behind it actually lay in uh, the genocide of um, American indigenous peoples, because over the over the 16th century, uh, the population of the Americas fell so catastrophically, 
some people say that uh, 95% of the indigenous peoples were um, died. You know, so what happened is that vast tracts of cultivated land reverted to forest, which created uh, this uh, reverse greenhouse effect, you know, sucking out a lot of uh, carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. And that is maybe one of the uh, one of the factors behind the onset of the Little Ice Age. So, you know, what we see there, when we look at this history from the point of view of, uh, you know, the past or, or whatever, is that this process of terraforming that we see, you know, which is ultimately what has given us this whole sort of uh, uh, crisis that we face today, it, it has very deep roots. I mean, it, it's accelerated a great deal uh, in, in recent times. But it goes back, really, to the, uh, you know, basically to the 16th century, you know. And I think that's exactly what we see today, you know. I mean, after all, uh, I mean, just consider, ecologically speaking, uh, you know, uh, North America and uh, South America. Basically, what happened here was that they were remade into what some people called neo-Europe's, you know. I mean, uh, so many of the native species were driven almost to extinction. I mean, very deliberately, I mean, like as with the bison and so on, uh, you know. And they were replaced with European species of various kinds, you know. And that happened here in South America and in Australia, you know. So, I mean, the level of ecological and demographic intervention that starts, you know, from the 15th century onwards, uh, I mean, it's almost unimaginable. You know, and where do these ideas of, say, let's say that kind of freedom and so on come from? After all, they weren't imagining freedom for everyone. I mean, they were certainly not imagining freedom for their slaves, uh, you know. So it really comes from this process of conquest, you know. So, in the most important way, I would say geopolitics is and always has been at the heart of this crisis. You know, and this is something that the migrant understands perfectly well, that, you know, you know, when he's sent back, you know, from the Mediterranean, or when he's trapped in Libya, or, you know, when he has nowhere to go from, uh, from Bangladesh with a passport, because he won't get a visa, you know. So, uh, you know, these are instantiations of a geopolitics which creates a very, very racialized world. You know, so all of these, all of these are intersecting things which lie behind this whole uh, climate crisis. After all, I mean, just look at the way that people say, um, "Oh, it's all because of the, um, because of population." But you know, five hundred Bangladeshis don't emit as much as a, a single average American. You know, so uh, what can you say? I mean, there's the high emitting world. And there's the very low emitting world, you know, and this is the fundamental structural injustice uh, which drives this crisis, you know. I mean, if you go to India or any part of Asia, really, and ask people, uh, you know, uh, what are you willing to do for the climate crisis and so on, they'll always say, well, they created the problem when we were poor and weak. So they should solve it. Let them give up everything, mm -hmm. you know? 
So in that way, inequality and injustice are absolutely at the at the heart of the problem. Yeah, and also who has the means to do knowledge production? That's right. Yeah, and then has you know end up having the last word on where the problem that's right originates from. Um, I just have a couple more questions. Um, I was really interested in, I found it very interesting uh, the way you talk about how the scattering of the people also scatters their language. Yeah. And, um, and in, in ironically, which also helps retain linguistic authenticity, which can only be found in the diaspora. Because I remember when I was in France, I was speaking to some people from India. They were native speakers of Hindi and Gujarati, and the language that they used seemed so archaic to me. Um, and then, you know, language, so the theme of language recurs quite prominently in the novel. Language as a tool in Dean's search for the gun island, Bangla is a language of intimacy and also a global language, Tipu's American language and all that, and I wondered what you might want to say about that. Well, you know, language fascinates me. It always has language, etymology, and so on. They've always, um, these aspects of language have always fascinated me. And I, I, I think, you know, one of the ways in which this world is not the world of 30 years ago is that it's an incredibly multilingual world. You know, you can't write about it uh, with monolingual assumptions and monolingual beliefs. And so we have Latin, sorry, we have Italian and Bangla. Yeah, that's novel. right. That's yeah. right. It's, I mean, uh, this is the world where we are going to have to systematically cope with other languages all the time. And that's one of the realities that I hope seeps into my book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, I also thought it was really very interesting, um, your delineation of this, you know, the very powerful friendships, in particular among men, um, the solidarity, you know, what people are willing to give up, the sacrifices they're willing to, you know, Rafi, for example, he, you know, in order to free Tipu or in order to help Tipu, he's willing to, you know, endanger his the sanity of his own physical body, the integrity of his body. Um, you hint um, at homosexuality, but very marginally. And I wondered whether that was deliberate. Um, and I'll move on to the second question about male friendship. Well, uh, you know, it's not really a hint. I mean, uh, in fact, Pia says in the book that the, uh, that Tipu and Rafi have a relationship, and they, um, you know, escape from there together um, in order to be able to live more freely and so on. But you know, the question of solidarities and uh, and friendships uh, amongst migrants are, are quite different. I heard very very moving stories actually about the lengths that they would go to to protect each other and you know you know you can understand it i mean you you undergo these terrible hardships together uh, when you're on the road and it creates kinds of you know loyalties and solidarities and also incredible guilt you yes. know because a, a guy who survives and his friend doesn't survive or his friends don't survive they feel racked with guilt you know i think one of the things which gets left out of the whole story of uh, these migrants often is ex- exactly this this aspect of uh, emotions of the emotions uh, and it's it's 
not at all a simple thing. You know, one of the weirdest things about it is uh, so many of these journeys start out of pride. You know, a guy will have a fight with his family and he'll say to the family, I will never come back, I will manage somehow. And that's what sets him off on the journey. You know, they'll cross, uh, they'll cross deserts, they'll cross... Uh, I mean, one man I met, you know, I mean, he went through incredible suffering and his family in Bangladesh are quite well off. Uh, you know, he lay in hospitals and, you know, in Libya and so on. But he wouldn't call home. He said, no, I would not. I wouldn't. You know, honor, self-respect. These are very, very important aspects of the migrant's journey. And I think that's the reason why Tipu never wants his mother to know exactly what yeah. he's doing. He sends his photoshopped picture of his being in Bangalore. Yeah, absolutely. And this is the case. You'll, I mean, I, I, I heard stories like that again and again, you know, of, um, um, you know, guys who just wouldn't, uh, just out of pride. You know, and if you think about it, it's not so hard to understand. I mean, you know, teenagers are like that. And uh, there are so many of these people who are teenagers. I mean, you know, you just look out on the streets of Seattle. So many, uh, you know, homeless teens who just uh, leave home out of pride or anger, uh, you know. Uh, so these are very important aspects of the journey that, uh, you know, we should not leave that out of the picture. That's right. And also it is this pride. So everyone goes to you know, the West to make a better life for themselves. And if they fail in their endeavor, it's their pride that keeps them there. So Absolutely. it's like they're trapped. Exactly. That's exactly it. And that's why I'm saying that, you know, when we talk about the self-directedness and so on, you know, we should recognize that actually these journeys, I mean, people set off on this journey in search of a better life. You know, but what is a better life? I mean, you know, be a better life, if you look it up under Google Images, you'll see it's a marketing slogan <laughs> that has somehow passed into this discourse. You know, it doesn't mean anything. I mean, what is a better life? Can you really have a better life in the absence of friendships and community and so on? That's so true. And so what is fascinating about your novel is that you know, a lot of the diaspora novels are structured around this whole idea of nostalgia and home and loss, you know, the familiarity of the world and everything. And you add to this by talking about, you know, the risks that people are willing to take and to go out into the wider world, risking, you know, um, the danger to, to the integrity of their own bodies. And for what? What do they have? What do they get over there? At the same time, in a very powerful sense, you bring out uh, a thriving, small, thriving Bangladeshi community that looks out for each other. They do, but it's not that simple. You know, I mean, a lot of these guys, they end up, they've left Bangladesh and everything, but they end up, what, I mean, living ten to a room in some decrepit yeah. old house in Sicily where they have to try and make a living by... You know, do you know running around with a squeegee cleaning? Um, I mean, is their life any better than it than it was in Bangladesh? I mean, I'm sure you've had this experience. I mean, so many times one talks to a taxi driver, and they're desperately unhappy, and they know they've made a terrible mistake, but they're they're stuck. They're stuck, yeah. And 
And Palash, for example, is yeah, stuck. they're stuck and are stuck for reasons of pride and honor and so on and so forth. You know, really, <laughs> the absolute reality is that many of these guys, they what they want to do is to work for three months and go home. You know, and if uh, if the world had any sense, they would make that possible. They don't want to live forever in uh, Italy, or I'm sure this, I don't know the American situation uh, so well, but I'm sure this is the case here also. I mean, look at the number of Mexicans who've gone back uh, to Mexico over the last many years, or the number of uh, you know old Italian migrants who've gone back to Italy. You know, so this is why I'm saying this this network, these forms of communication are so profoundly disruptive because actually people don't know what makes them happy. It creates structures of unhappiness that come purely out of uh, um, looking at screens. And that's the eternal question, what is happiness? Exactly. And you know, once, once they've arrived in this place thinking that it's a better life, it proves not to be uh, in any sense, a better life, mm -hmm. you know? And I think which is a reason why Dean frequently keeps going back to Calcutta because he feels very empty and hollow living in Brooklyn. Yeah, that's one of the reasons. Uh, but look, you know, we are living in a time of what you might call circulatory migration. You know, it's not like um, a hundred years ago when a guy would get onto a ship and, uh, you know, leave behind Poland and, uh, you know, anchor himself or herself to the soil of, you know, Milwaukee or something, you know. It's just not like that anymore. Now, because of communications technologies, travel technologies and so on, uh, uh, those returns are possible. And I think, actually, that's the... That's the circumstance that people aspire to you know to be able to make some money and, and then go, go home, home and spend uh, you know six months resting in the village mm -hmm. then they come back and uh, you know work again and this is how it happens inside India as well yeah and sort of talking about you know how people become trapped if they wanted to initially just come for a few months or maybe a few years and make some money and go back home so yesterday I was talking to an Uber driver and he's been, he's trapped in Seattle for the past 18 years. He can't bring his, and he's from India, can't bring yeah. his wife here. His children live in Australia and he's completely lonely and isolated. Yeah, I mean, uh, I was in a taxi in, um, in, uh, in Berkeley and the guy was an Algerian and he said to me, you know, describing all his difficulties, driving a taxi and this and that. And then he says, uh, you know, I came for the American dream and I found a, in French, cauchemar. Cauchemar nightmare. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> right. So um, I would like to end this content. This is really, I'm so, so grateful and so delighted to be able to talk to you. Um, I was intrigued by one particular sentence, a reference that you make, and I like to end this conversation on that. Um, you say at some point of time in the novel, that Indian men have no inner life. <laughs> I was really intrigued by that. Oh, it's just a joke. <laughs> <laughs> it's a joke that comes... I, uh, I was actually almost quoting myself in the shadow lines where, uh, you know, Tridib <laughs> says something like, you know, we don't have inner lives, we have a, we have a gastric. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> That's such a funny reference. <laughs>
Okay, so so you want to leave it at uh, leave this at this ambiguous <laughs> extrapolation extrapolation of this sentence. Okay, well, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you, and we're also delighted that you took time to come to Europe, Seattle. And thank you. I'm glad I could be here. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me.